0: There's a line from the Dhammapada that's been that's uh, come up into my mind a few times this this past week. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone does hatred cease. This is the eternal law. Thinking about this earlier today, it reminded me of something uh, Dr. Martin Luther King once said. He said, I have decided to stick with love. Hatred is too great a burden to bear. So I'd like to dedicate this talk tonight to all who choose love, which is not the easy choice much of the time and also to all of you in gratitude for your practice and with deep respect. Once a long time ago, when Brahmadatta was king in Benares, there was an old woman who had a little calf. Now, this calf was of a very unusual, pure, beautiful, dark color. It was totally jet black without even a single spot of white anywhere. And even when quite small, the little calf carried himself with a kind of noble bearing, a kind of noble grace, for this calf was the Bodhisattva, the one who would become the Buddha. The old woman raised the little calf just as though he were her own child. And although she was very poor, she fed him on the best rice she could. Sometimes she was able to prepare uh, rice porridge for him also. And she petted the calf's head and his neck. And he licked her hand and followed her wherever she went. This is the way, often with true affection. And the old woman called her little calf my little one. And the people in the village, when they would see how, how, what dear friends they were, they started calling the calf Grandma's Little, or sometimes just Little for short. Over time, Little grew to be a magnificent, strong bull, and his jet black coat glistened like sunlight on water. His horns and his hooves gleamed like polished silver. And his tongue was the color of a red late-season rose. And even when he grew to a really large, very impressive, magnificent size, little one remained very tame and gentle. And the village children would play with him. And they'd hold onto his neck and his ears and his horns. Sometimes they would even grab his tail and swing themselves up onto his back for a ride. But Little liked children, and he never complained. He was always patient and kind. One day this friendly bull thought to himself, the loving old woman who brought me up is like a kind mother to me. She raised me as if I were her own child and fed me the very best that she had. She is poor and in need, but too kind and humble to ask for my help and too gentle to force me to work. She is my true friend, and because I also love her as my own mother, I wish to help her in some way. So grandma's little one began looking for work. One day a caravan of 500 carts drew near to the village, and each cart was pulled by a pair of bullocks. The caravan stopped at the river ford near the village to cross. But that year, the seasonal rains had been unusually heavy. And the river was running really high and very strong. The bullocks were not able to pull the carts across. And when the caravan leader tried hitching all 500 pairs of bullocks, to the car, even one cart, to the first cart, they couldn't even pull that one cart across. The river was too swift and high. So faced with this problem, the caravan leader uh, started to look around for help. Now this man was well known as an expert judge of livestock, and he could tell at a single glance the quality of a bull. And while casting his expert eye over the wandering village herd, he noticed grandma's little. And at once he had the thought, that bull is no ordinary beast. A noble bull such as that has both the strength and the will to pull my carts across the river. So he turned to some villagers who were working nearby and he said, To whom does that big bull belong? I would like to use him to help pull my caravan across the river. I am willing to pay his owner for his services. And the villagers said, His master is not here, but by all means take him. His owner would be very glad of the money. So the caravan leader approached grandma's little one and putting a rope through his collar, he tried to lead him away, but when he pulled, he could not move the mighty bull even one inch. For little was thinking, until this man says what he will pay for my work, I will not move. (laughs) Being such a good judge of bulls, the caravan leader thought to himself, this bull knows both his measure and his worth. I shall have to offer him a fair wage before he will agree to pull my carts. So he said, my dear bull, after you have pulled my 500 carts across the river, I will pay you two gold coins for each cart, not just one, but two. I guess the going rate was one gold coin per cart. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing this, Grandma's little went with him at once. Then the caravan driver harnessed the strong bull to the first cart and Little proceeded to pull it across the river with ease, something that all 1,000 bullocks could not do. In the same way, he pulled across each of the remaining 499 carts, one at a time, without slowing down a bit, without even taking a rest. When all was done, the caravan leader thought to himself, My offer of two gold coins per cart was made in haste. Surely I can get away with paying only one gold coin for each cart. This bull may be strong and noble, but he is just a bull. He will never know the difference. He then made up a package and hung it around the little's neck, a package of 500 coins. Grandma's little thought, this man promised two gold coins per cart. (laughs) But that is not what he has hung around my neck. (laughs) He thinks I will not be able to tell the difference, and so he is trying to cheat me. I will not let him leave. So he went to the front of the caravan, and he blocked the path. The caravan leader tried to push the mighty bull out of the way, but he could not move him at all. Then he tried driving the carts around the mighty bull. But all the other bulls had seen how strong Little was and they refused to pull the carts. The man thought, there is no doubt that this is a very intelligent bull. (laughs) (laughs) He knows that I have given him only half pay. There is no way to cheat a bull like this. (laughs) And if I don't pay him the amount I promised, I'm never going to get this caravan back on the road. So he made up a new package containing all 1,000 gold coins, the promised wage. And he hung it around Little's neck. Then Grandma's little one recrossed the river and walked directly home towards his his mother, the old woman. Along the way, the village children tried to grab the money package, thinking that it had all been some kind of game. But Little gently pushed them aside with his great velvety nose. And so he escaped them without causing them any harm or fear. When the woman saw the heavy package, she was very surprised. And the children who had followed little home told her all about what had happened down at the river. She carefully removed the package from around little one's neck and discovered the 1,000 gold coins. The old woman also saw the tired look in her little one's eyes, in the eyes of her child. She said, oh, my son, do you think I wish to live off of the money you earn? Why did you wish to work so hard and suffer so much? No matter how difficult it may be, I will always care for you and look after you. Then the kind woman and the children washed the great bowl and massaged his tired muscles with perfumed oil. She fed him a good meal and cared for him. And they both lived together in affectionate companionship through both good days and difficult days for the rest of their long lives. So I'd like to uh, continue with my discussion of the Karaniya Metta Sutta and I'll begin with, we'll begin with some chanting. Uh, anyone who wishes to join me will start <coughs> with the line <coughs> following where I left off, uh, the line that begins even as a mother and will end at uh, sublime abiding. <coughs> Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. Outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So the uh, short Jataka story that I told to begin this evening and the first line of the uh, part of the sutta that we just chanted uh, have a certain kind of certainly direct reference to uh, the quality of care, of love, that a mother would feel for her child. In the sutta, it's it's uh, spoken about in terms of a quality of protection, as a mother would protect her child. This can bring up a lot for some of us, and so perhaps it it's wise to think of this uh, these lines as referring to a good mother, because there are some people where the situation uh, between the parents, between a mother and child is is fraught with difficulty, and um, sometimes those relationships are truly harmful. We acknowledge the truth of this. And there are, are a lot of things um, here that, that are are important to bring in mind in terms of uh, what can be difficult in in these kinds of relationships, and um, the depression that can come at times of childbirth, postpartum depression, and you know the loss of freedom that a new mother experiences, and the difficulties with that. But I still think that there's a way we can really appreciate uh, what these words are trying to touch or point to—an emotion. Uh, a quality of heart that is uh, so powerful and in a way so uh, directly accessible, so universal, that it can become a a, a really beautiful image for the quality of heart, of loving kindness. Because at least in theory, the love that a mother feels for her newborn child is this immediate strong, naturally arising quality, and it is, um, it's is—it's almost a, an imperative, perhaps it's a kind of biological imperative in a way, where she would place her own life ahead of, uh, not ahead of, place the life of her child ahead of her own life. This kind of love that we could say is entirely giving and asks for nothing in return, does not seek any kind of self-benefit. In the texts, uh, one of the, one of the uh, commentaries uses this image of the love that a mother cow feels for her calf. There's a calf in the story I told. But at that time, uh, it was an agrarian society. There were cows and calves around a lot, an image that would maybe be uh, directly accessible for people. But I had an interesting experience with this myself when i was living in uh, in i was living in the robes of a of a bhikkhu of a a monk buddhist monk and i was staying for a while in a place in upper burma in the Sagang hills where i have spent a lot of time living in a small monastery staying in a in a cave there kind of a nice cave but a cave nevertheless and i would walk every day down to the village on alms round to collect the food for my meal. That was my practice then. It was beautiful at that time because um, that area is full of nunneries and monasteries and um, there were little pathways coming down to a more main roadway and um, we would trickle down out of the hills like little streams and then uh, make our way into the village. And I followed the same route each day at about the same time, walking barefoot with only the alms bowl, as, as is the tradition. And I came around one corner and there was a cow with a brand new calf, still covered in, in uh, the afterbirth. And she was bathing the calf with her tongue. And it was just wobbly, just had just stood up. So brand new that morning, and uh, the the sense of that image it made sense to me because it was such a direct expression of care, of love there in that that picture. I could see oh that's why they might use that kind of image. <clears throat> the section that we just uh, gave voice to sp- speaks a lot to the this sense of being boundless and unlimited, this quality of. Um, the Metta out in all directions. This unconditional, immeasurable field there. The Tibetans have a beautiful way of speaking of Metta and the other Brahma Viharas. They call them the, the four immeasurables a thing that cannot be measured, it's beyond measure. And that's a lovely image. And I think it points to the fact that these qualities of heart have this potential to become immeasurable, to be in no way bounded by anything. We can actually expand the mind and heart to the point where there is no boundary. In the suttas, this is the classic description of the practice of metta. One abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, likewise the second, likewise the third, and likewise the fourth, and so above and below and all around and everywhere. One abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind, with a heart, imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. There's a beautiful series of chants that are based on this teaching um, because of the same uh, exact same phrase is used for each of the remaining Brahmaviharas, all four of them, the four immeasurables. And I, I love this um, idea of pervading in these directions as though one were at the center of a field or a bubble of care, of kindness, and it's, it's expanding outward more and more in all directions. So there is, this is a really a true, a real possibility. The mind, the heart can become that vast, are that vast. We can tap into this. And in this description from, that I just read from the suttas and from the chant also, there's this uh, sense of this quality being freed from any kind of hostility ill will. That's the absence of that. I'm pointing to uh, the fact that when these qualities are not there, then the quality of metta, of kindness, that just arises naturally, unbidden, because um, it's there. So you could say that in the absence of what is unwholesome, wholesomeness reveals itself. It's the natural response of the heart. And we find the same thing pointed out in various places in the teachings in the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness of mind in the third foundation or third establishment of mindfulness, where we're instructed to notice both the presence and the absence of the, the kilesas, of the energies of greed, grasping, of hatred, aversion, of confusion. We notice if they're present, we notice if they're absence. And for me, there is this implication there that When those are not there, then the uh, wholesome roots of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, that those, those are there, or we could say, we could phrase them in the positive, the roots of generosity, of kindness, of wisdom. Those are there. There are two uh, short statements that the Buddha once made in, in a teaching it's in the Anguttara Nikaya that speaks to this in a, in a really beautiful uh, and I think deceptively simple way. He said, luminous is this mind, but it is clouded by adventitious defilements. The word adventitious means visiting a thing that is not an inherent part of something. That's not intrinsic to, you could say. Luminous is this mind, and it is freed from these visiting defilements, those these two simple statements. It is clouded. It is not clouded. It is freed from them. Now we might wonder what was meant by this word luminous. That might be a subject that we could debate about or discuss but we can get a sense I think for the what's the important point here what's being pointed to here feels uh, the point of that those statements in the second half of each of them they both begin with the words luminous is this mind and in the first statement the this luminosity is clouded by these visiting energies in the second one it is freed from them it is not clouded by them the mind, may be clouded, may be free from these energies, but its intrinsic nature, this luminosity remains the same. You could have the same image of the sky when clouds come. The, cl- the sky isn't changed by them. The clouds come when they go, the clarity of the sky has remained. It wasn't changed. It was never changed. can't be touched. The basic nature of the mind remains the same. When the mind is not clouded by these visiting energies, then metta arises naturally. It's a natural response to life because the mind's nature is love. Andrea spoke about this, how that is is right underneath these other energies. It's the flip side, you could say, in her beautiful talk uh, a few days ago. So this points to something really important when we approach the practice of loving kindness, approach the subject in any way. We're not trying to find something outside of our own mind and heart and, and get it and stick it in there. That's not what we're doing. We're just uncovering what's already present. It may have been clouded over, but we don't have to find anything. We're not getting anything we don't have, ever. And we're not going anywhere other than where we are with this practice. The last line of the section we just chanted refers to uh, loving kindness as one of the Brahma-viharas. Literally, that means Brahma is godlike or divine. Vihara is a, a place one dwells in, an abode, divine abiding. This is said to be, in the, in the chant, it's, they say sublime. Literally, Brahma Vihara means divine. And we could look at the, the way that in any moment, when the mind and heart are suffused with this quality, it is a truly divine abiding. There's a sense of connection and ease, of completeness, fullness in that moment. Nothing lacking. Nothing missing. The final section, uh, I sort of talked about the, the metta-sutta as being kind of in, in these sections. And the last section is uh, the shortest it's just one phrase. In the chant, it's three lines, three short lines. And they really have a different tone from the rest of the sutta. And there's a shift away, you could say, from both the practice, the description of this quality, towards uh, wisdom, towards liberation, towards the heart's true release, complete release. So we can chant that last... Uh, Those last three lines, the last short verse. Excuse me. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-desires, is not born again into this world. So this points to uh, what we could think of as the transcendent or liberating possibility and aspect of the practice of loving kindness. There's a reference here in the first line to the pure-hearted one. I think it's my favorite part of the sutta. The pure-hearted one. And we can, could see this as a description of the mind or heart of the fully liberated being, of the Arahant, in whose mind and heart the energies of um, greed, hatred, and delusion, they're, they're, it's purified of those. But, um, but we all can and do at moments touch this heart of purity because that's the nature of things. So this is not just pointing to some far-off situation or goal that we might think and hold as unattainable. Maybe right now, for a moment, you can touch that pure heart. Some quality of that purity of heart. This part of the sutta also speaks to um, qualities that um, you could say are characterizing the the awakened mind and heart, and also support the arising of liberating wisdom of understanding. The first of these in that first line, by not holding to fixed views. The Buddha pointed to the fact that views that we might hold to are limited limited fabrications, you could say. They often do more to distort our vision than to bring any kind of clarity. What is uh, thought about or referred to as right or wise view in this teaching on this path really is more about removing distorted views than adopting some superior or better view, a correct view. There's not, it's not like a value judgment that would say, this view is superior to that one. For example, that the view of not-self is better than the view of self, as though this were just some philosophical stance we might adopt. So in this example, what's being pointed at here is is that constructing this view, the generally held view of self, involves what oh, we could say is a kind of mistaken process that is based on not seeing things as they really are. And through dismantling a mistaken view, an obscuring kind of view, then we'll see reality. And as we see through our mistaken views, then... Uh, wise view arises as a result of that. So not taking on some other better view. We're not doing that. So we don't have to take on the view that there is no self. We don't have to adopt that. We see that what we take to be self isn't what we think it is. So there's a mistaken view there where we're attributing a solidity, a kind of ongoing inherent existence to something that is actually just a process. It's a feeling that arises in relation to some aspect of experience, arises out of conditions, falls away when those conditions change. We attribute thingness to a process. There's all kinds of examples of mistaken or fixed views that one might hold to. Assumptions about ourselves, about the nature of reality. And sometimes these are woven into the fabric of our perception in a way that we have no idea that they're even there, that they're even operating. But they don't reflect the truth of things and as a result they lead to stress and suffering in our lives. We've spoken about this. All the ways that we identify ourselves or others. I'm fearful. I'm not lovable. I'm not okay. There's something wrong with me. You're like this. You're this kind of person. You're this way. You're that way. I'm this way. I'm that way. Views about what we hold ourselves to be capable of that then become self-fulfilling. I can't do this. I'm no good at this. All the stories we tell ourselves that Rebecca spoke about the other night. So in the teachings, in the metta sutta, the Buddha's not telling us that these are, are bad or wrong or evil and that our job is to somehow make them not happen. But We're to look at them and see them for what they are, to not necessarily believe everything that the mind cooks up and offers to us. Cautions us. Points to this ability that we can recognize our habitual tendencies to create these limited versions of reality. And start to see when we are holding to views, holding to fixed views and seeing through the lens of metta as kindness with awareness, this beautiful description of this quality, kindness with awareness, then we can start to see these these views, these stories, for what they are. We don't have to believe them, inhabit the universe they create in our mind and heart. We see that they're just conditioned constructions, fabrications of the mind, can relate to them uh, in the same way as we would any kind of sense contact. And so the non-holding to these fixed views arises because we see there's nothing there to hold on to. We see that they're empty. There's nothing there. There's no inherent truth there. In her talk the other night, Andrea spoke about this widely held really deeply pervasive mistaken view that is often held to, that the Buddha was pointing at, at, the very core of his teachings, this view that transient pleasant experiences have the ability to bring lasting satisfaction, that they are the road to happiness, deep, true happiness. And as we've said over and over, it's not that there's something wrong with pleasant experiences. They're good They're good for us. We should have them and enjoy them when we can. But we need to be clear that we're not asking them to provide something they aren't capable of providing ever. And that's this lasting happiness. A strategy for finding true contentment and ease. They can't ever bring us there because they don't last. They're not reliable. So the practice of metta opens the mind and heart to what we could say is a kind of non-worldly happiness, a happiness that is not born of sense contacts. It's an ultimately deeper, more satisfying kind of happiness, you could say. And we can taste it at times when the quality of metta is strong in the heart. So the practice of metta can actually liberate us from this tendency to cling to mistaken views, fixed views. And it turns us towards a deeper kind of happiness, towards the happiness of peace. So in these lines that we chanted, the clarity of vision that arises when we don't hold the fixed views leads to the next part of that line having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires. You could say freed from the power of craving, desire, grasping in the mind, this root source or the suffering that we feel, all the different ways it shows up. I think it's important to understand the difference between finding freedom from the power of this energy and the difference between that and the fact that it might arise in the mind and heart. Freedom from it, from its power, does not depend on it not ever arising. There are times when it doesn't arise and perhaps in the mind of a fully enlightened being it does not arise, but maybe it still does. This is some words from uh, a nun in Thailand, Mechi Kao, who was widely held to be fully enlightened. She was a student of uh, two very famous teachers, Ajahn Mun and uh, Ajahn Mahabua, who I had the great fortune to meet on a couple of occasions. <clears throat> this is some words from Chi Kao. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire and wind, body, feeling, memory, thought and consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches and emotions, anger, greed and delusion. All are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart." So this may not be our ongoing experience. But we can taste moments, get a taste of this freedom in moments because these energies are not always there and they don't always hold sway over the mind. They may even arise, but they don't shake the mind and heart always. And Get a taste for this possibility and point us towards the possibility that there can be this complete this freedom from them. freedom from these energies that uh, when they hold sway over the heart and mind, they they keep us bound to the cycle, the wheel of endless wandering, of samsaric existence, you could say, which brings us to the final line of the sutta, is not born again into this world. Pointing to this uh, release from uh, rounds of birth, death, and rebirth. Whether we take this literally, some sense of, of literal births, deaths, rebirths. We can understand it. That way we can see it as the birth that we take in each moment. We take birth in each moment, over and over. And so the freedom there is the freedom of taking birth into these repetitive, habitual, thought cycles patterns of behavior that cause us ongoing stress and suffering we no longer take birth into those because they're seen through and they fall away or their power over the mind and heart falls away and it's fitting and i think very appropriate that the metta sutta ends in this way ends with this last Uh, these last three lines because it um, points to the thrust of all of the teachings. It's the only thing the Buddha was interested in was this liberation of mind and heart. And metta can be seen thus in this way as an integral part as an aspect of, as a path to the deepest possible realization. At the beginning of the sutta this is what's done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace, who aims for that path of peace, who walks that path of peace. This is the path of peace. There are traditionally said to be 11 benefits for, for one who practices and develops and cultivates metta, loving kindness, and and brings it to uh, real fruition and um, takes it to real depth. I may not get through all of these. I'll I'll offer a few of them. The first three have to do with um, sleeping and waking up. said that one sleeps in comfort, does not turn over and over, and falls asleep as though entering an attainment. One wakes in comfort instead of groaning and yawning, and turning over, one wakes in comfort without contortions like a lotus opening. I picture you all in your beds, opening like flowers in the morning. <laughs> I tend to do the groaning yawning <laughs> most of the time, and it's said that one doesn't have bad or evil dreams only auspicious dreams as though making an offering at a shrine, or hearing the Dhamma." Maybe that's not happening, but uh, we can see how uh, when these qualities are strong and we developed, when metta is really strong in the heart and there's a deepening commitment to care and and as part of this uh, non-harming in our lives. There is more freedom from fear and worry, and our lives become more simple and clear. And this can start to extend into our sleeping life, our dreaming life, our waking. Said that one is uh, the fourth and fifth benefit have to do with being dear to uh, human beings and dear to non-human beings. And we could see how the energy that we extend into the world tends to draw back to it the same kind of energy. And, and if we develop and extend metta, then metta will tend to come back to us. It's not like guaranteed, and, uh, but but this will tend to be the case. And so we develop the heart of kindness, extend that, and beings feel that they can trust us because they know we have their um, interests, their best interests in, in mind. And in our heart, we have their welfare in mind. And we become dear to them. We become a beacon of light, like a place of safety. Other beings know that we will not harm them. So this sense of being dear. But I have a little story I'll I'll tell you because I'm in this is my storytelling retreat. Um, this is uh, from one of the commentaries that illustrates how one is dear to non-human beings because there's an important point in here. This is the story of the elder Visaka who was a disciple of the Blessed One, of the Buddha. And when, at a certain time in his life, when the conditions were right, he left his home in order to pursue the Dhamma, and he traveled far and wide. And eventually he traveled to Ceylon, to Sri Lanka. And it was said that the conditions were favorable there, and the elder had heard this report of that faraway land. It is said that one can sit or lie wherever one likes there. That the climate is favorable, that the abodes also are favorable, and further, the people are said to be favorable, for they will support one in pursuing the good Dhamma. As well, it is said that the Dhamma to be heard there is favorable, and that all these favorable things are easily obtained there. So, hearing this good report, the elder Isaka traveled to that place, and he undertook the discipline and training of a renunciate, and undertook the life in robes as an alms mendicant. And after he practiced for five years, as is the tradition, under the guidance of his teacher, he set out to wander, and he wandered by stages to the monastery at Chittalapabhata. And after he had practiced in that place for four months, one night he lay down to rest, and he thought, in the morning I shall depart this place. But it said that a tree spirit, a deva, whose home was in a manila tree near the stairway at the end of the elder's walking path, sat down on a step and sat there weeping. Hearing this, the elder Visaka asked, who is that? It is I, Maniliya, venerable sir. Why are you weeping, Maniliya? Oh, dear sir, I am weeping because you are going away. Why does this trouble you, Manaliya? What good does my living here do you? Because as long as you live here, non-human beings treat each other kindly. Now when you are gone, they will start quarrels and engage in loose talk. <laughs> then the elder Visaka said, If my living here helps you to be at peace, that is good. And so he stayed on in that place for an additional four months. But then again he thought, In the morning I shall leave. And again, the deva-maniliya wept as before. And so the elder decided to stay, and he lived there. And it was there that he attained Nibbana. So we have to be careful of loose talk among the devas. (laughs) This is a problem. Mm, I'm out of time. Let's see. I'll skip to the last of the benefit. It said that one is reborn in higher realms. And as I was saying before, we don't have to uh, take on some belief about rebirth, but we can see in our moment-to-moment experience the way that we take birth, as I said, into the moment. And depending on our state of mind in any moment, we can take birth into a very difficult state into a hell realm, we can take birth into a heavenly realm. So, when metta is strong and in the mind and heart, we do take birth in that moment into a, a heavenly realm, into a higher realm. <clears throat> a friend of mine a couple of years ago told me that um, she had changed her religion on her Facebook page, which I admit I don't really know what it is, kind of know, but I've never really done Facebook, but I guess you could say things about yourself on there. And uh, she had put on it uh, that her religion was kindness in response to uh, the Dalai Lama's very famous statement once. He said, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And I think we hear this and And it can sound just kind of sweet, like something you'd find in a greeting card. And it probably is in some greeting card somewhere, (laughs) I'm sure it is. (laughs) And we can dismiss it and miss the profound understanding that it points to, that is expressed there. So if we think of religion in this context as what we could say is kind of a worldly expression of the deepest spiritual understanding, then we could maybe get a sense, I think, for what His Holiness was pointing to in making this kind of statement. Because when the deepest truths are understood and integrated into the mind, into our very essence, then kindness as our religion is just the natural response of the heart. It's the expression of our understanding, not a choice or decision. It's just the way it is. It's the natural expression of this luminous heart, luminous mind. So in a way you could say that the practice of freedom and the practice of love are the same thing. The practice of freedom is the practice of love and the practice of love is the practice of freedom. There's a beautiful quotation that is often repeated. You've probably heard it maybe on the first half of this retreat or at some point. It's from the Indian teacher Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. He once said, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. This wisdom of I am nothing isn't some kind of bleak emptiness. But it's this deep inner wisdom that is characterized by a clear, unbounded, uncluttered spaciousness, spaciousness, unrestricted spaciousness in the heart and mind, where there's no separation, you could say, of self and other. So if one is nothing in this way, there are no barriers or boundaries to the expression of love. That's why love tells me I am everything. Being nothing, We are inevitably essentially everything. And kindness, care, compassion, they arise within this great emptiness. It's an emptiness that's totally full. So these kinds of reflections for me, they lead me directly towards this um, beautiful, powerful expression of loving kindness that Annie spoke about the other day, uh, bodhicitta, the awakened heart and mind, and the way this can um, really inform our practice, really serve as a, a, a real motivation, not just an idea, but a real motivation for our practice. So We could say on, on the relative or relational level, bodhicitta functions in the form of compassion, of the heart resonating to suffering and the wish to alleviate suffering in the world. A heart response. On a more ultimate level, we could say it's what the words mean. Body, awakened, citta, mind, heart. The awakened mind, heart. This natural, luminous quality of the mind. So a simple understanding of that might be that uh, it's reflecting the understanding that in the ultimate sense, our own happiness and the happiness of others is the one and the same thing. And so if we hold this understanding in mind, we can approach our practice with the motivation born of love and compassion of connection. That we awaken for the welfare, the benefit of all beings. That we engage with everything that arises in the mind and heart with this, because it is for the benefit of all beings. We can dedicate our practice. When I bow and come in and gesture with Anjali, this gesture of respect, I bring these some words to my mind. May my practice be in service to for the benefit of all beings. Dedicate my life and practice in this way. I've been doing this for a long time and it was really hard at first. It's gotten easier. I used to have this voice that would say, Yeah, right. Who are you kidding? as if there were anything there worth dedicating. But I've kept doing it anyway, and it's really shifted. And that's a real, that has reality for me. It informs my life and my practice in a way that um, I, I think I never thought was possible. So you might consider doing it, even if you don't want to. But don't force yourself, of course. So I'll end this evening with a few words a small excerpt from um, Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It's a kind of dedication. It's from the section on dedication. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself, And raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained, and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures. For boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So we can sit quietly for another moment or so. Let these words drift away.